0: This is the Youth Worker Collective podcast from Young People's Ministries. You don't have to be in ministry alone with resources, coaching, games and more at umcyoungpeople.com.
1: Welcome, happy uh, January to everybody, and uh, I'm Chris Wilterdink, I'm the Director of Young People's Ministries uh, at uh, Discipleship Ministries of the United Methodist Church, and super excited to be here with uh, our co-host Jeremy Steele, who's at Los Altos UMC out in California, and welcoming Kenda Creasy-Dean. In case folks are not familiar with Kenda, she is uh, not only an ordained United Methodist minister and the professor of youth, church, and culture at Princeton Theological Seminary. Uh, But she is also uh, an author of multiple books, the co-founder of Ministry Incubators. Uh, And, um, gosh, she's been a pastor. She's been a campus minister. Uh, She completed her Ph.D. in practical theology at Princeton in 1997. Uh, which was a very good year. It happened to be the year I was a junior in high school. but uh... And the year I graduated high okay, school. Okay, bye so. now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, So, Kenda, welcome. We are super excited to be with you today.
2: It's so fun to be here.
1: <laughs> and the, she's got a,
0: a book. The most recent book is uh, Delighted, What Teenagers Are Teaching the Church About Joy. And it, it talks about grounding ministry in joy rather than fear, which I, I love that whole concept. Um, <laughs> I grew up in uh, in a world that was dominated by fear-based youth ministry. <laughs> Luckily, my youth pastor was not like that. Um, it was a very different world in our church uh, than the uh, churches around us. But um yeah, kinda. You know, each week we have different guests that have different backgrounds, and um, everybody kind of brings their own thing. And, and you bring this, um, you know, academic world of research. And I'm wondering, what are you seeing? Like, what kind of things are on the horizon? What are um, What are some some kind of thoughts and observations that people are making? Um, that you feel like are, are maybe important, novel, or kind of just something interesting that that we should yeah. put in our brains and let let percolate as we are going about our ministry.
2: Okay, that's a little bitty question. Um, yeah, anything, yeah, it's anything.
0: Hopefully, you can find yeah. anything to say.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, the stuff that I've been, um, you know seeing or or tinkering with you know are they're kind of all over the map I could ask all the time you know what what do you see next over the horizon right
0: Mm -hmm.
2: and you know I've spent a lot of time kind of straining to see that and I Mm -hmm. the thing is I've not I, I I don't see a big thing over the horizon but the image that I have in my head all the time I don't anybody see the movie Dunkirk or read your mm-hmm. history book you know you know what happened there right all the little fishermen boats from the coast of England came across to rescue the troops anyway there's this one scene in it which they capture the visual of that where you know over the horizon comes just the sea that's peppered with these little bitty kinds of boats you know just any old kind of boat that they can get people off of the beach with and um, that's kind of what I see um, happening for us too that it's we don't I don't know. There might be a big thing out there that I'm just missing. But what I do think we have is a period of experimentation right now where there's lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of little boats that are coming over the horizon. And I'm not really sure it matters which one we get in. I think that the <laughs> point is to get in one you know, so that right. we're not just stranded on the beach. Um, so the research follows that pattern a little bit too. It seems to be kind of, um, all over the map right now in terms of there, there are certain um, centers of research in youth ministry that seem to be continuing what they have been doing. Um, So, you know, the sticky faith group over um, at, in Pasadena is, you know, they, they continue to build on that brand. And the um, Christian Smith is about to release his, the last book from the um, national study of youth and religion, which, you know, has been a 10 year, um, publication avalanche and it's on parents and what he concludes in that, which is worth noting, I think is that (laughs) essentially nothing really matters except parents. That's kind of where he, he lands on that. Um, And if he's right on that, that, and the reason for that is he thinks that the institutional fabric, particularly of churches is so frayed right now that and I'm not sure he's wrong, um, that at the end of the day, the only extended contact anyone has of faith is through their families. And mm. so if, if we care that our kids have faith, it's, it's time to drill down and, and deal with parents. Basically. That's not new news. That's still building on things that we've known for a while, although, you know, it's Chris Smith. So he says it in a really pointed way. And, um, and I'm not sure he's wrong because what it does is point to some of the um, frailty, institutional frailty. The systems that we have had, you know, our pipelines in terms of growing faith are just, you know, they got a ton of holes in them. So, so that's another pocket. Um, there is, um, we're going to continue to see for a while, some of the um, research that's come from the uh, Yale's joy project, which is where the delighted book came from Um, because everybody there, everybody, it involved every, just about everybody on the planet. There's all of, you know, people who were involved in that project and um, and all of them are supposed to be writing things. So, you know, we're going to see the ramifications of that for a while. Um, And, you know, that has different, that has different ramifications. Again, it's another pocket. Um, in ter- but in terms of what is steering the conversation, um, I think the real underlying, um, there's, not one, there's not one pocket of research that I know of anyway that's about this, but I think the institutional frailty right now is really what everybody's trying to address. They're trying to figure out what happens to faith when the normal, our normal assumptions about how it happens are no longer present are no longer true. And so if there's a constant that kind of holds all those research pockets together, i I think it might be that.
0: Yeah. That I, that's you know, interesting. And, you know, I, I wonder, um, it's not the first time we've had institutional frailty in church yeah. history. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, that's, that's really fascinating. Um, so, I first um, engaged with uh, you and your work through um a book called Practicing Passion and um
2: that was your first one? Wow so- sorry <laughs> yeah,
0: sorry, but you know it I've been thinking uh a lot about about that recently, and um and and I wonder that's something I think that is an interesting idea that the the way that we engage with passion and, and particularly your characterization of passion, which is not enthusiasm, right?
2: <laughs> Correct. Thank you for so, reading it that way. <laughs>
0: that's right. So can you tell us just before we move into the next piece, um, give us a sense of um, what, how you understand passion and how, um, how that is key to the spiritual lives of teenagers.
2: Yeah. Um, I, it's funny. Cause I was back into it. I was just telling Chris that I just, you'll hear this. I just finished teaching a class on failure. And um, so I was back into that. Um, research myself. And mm-hmm. the way I understand passion is. You know, I, I, I'm more invested than the normal human should be in this word, but um is to drill down into its um, origins rather than its cultural habits. The cultural habit is to think about it as what, what is it that makes you really excited, you know, enthusiastic. Um, But um, it came from reading uh, theologian Jürgen Moltmann's book, Crucified God, when I was um, in seminary. And the idea was that, you know, passion actually means, you know, loving something enough that you're willing to suffer for it. Mm. And, not only did that kind of ring true, he uses a lot more words to say that, but um, I think every, that that's the definition of passion that I think teenagers intuitively gravitate towards, you know, love that is worth dying for is real love. Anything less is cheap. And and, you know, I think anybody who's been in youth ministry for more than 10 minutes is already there. You know, this is, this is where we live, right? We're, we spend our lives to trying to figure out a way to show kids that they're worth dying for, you know, and um, hoping that God will take that and, you know, somehow allow them to see that that's the love that God has for us as well. So anyway, that's a that's kind of it. That it has ancient links to the definition of passion as suffering and suffering, not as you know abject, meaningless agony, which is kind of the way we think about it now, but as um, being overwhelmed in some ways, not always choosing, but willingly allowing oneself to be overwhelmed by something beyond us. You know, being submerged. So baptism would be a passion experience, right? We're submerged. And, um, and we're submerged with God.
0: Thank you, Kenda. And and thank you for being with us today.
2: So, um, I know that you guys have been doing this in various forms. Um, I, I mentioned that I just finished teaching this class on failure. And so my head has been there and I, I decided let's, let's, let's reflect on that a little bit together. Um, and, it feels kind of timely, um, given the year that we've had. Um, there are so many stories of tragedy, one after another, stacked on. You know, 2020 is the year that keeps on giving, and uh, I think a lot of us watched the inauguration yesterday with our fingers crossed. Um, but the seeds for this period were planted a long time ago. It's going to take a long time to come back from them, I think. Um, and anyway, I have a colleague, um, Eric yeah. Barreto, who does a lot of research on. Um, the gospel of luke so um i'm indebted to him for some of the interpretations here because luke tells this um account of uh the crucifixion differently than the other gospels and and you know in matthew and mark we get jesus as kind of a ransom payment um the cross is the cost of delivering us from captivity that's where we get substitutionary atonement and that kind of stuff in the gospel of john jesus is the lamb of god being offered um, in sacrifice at the very same time, the Passover, that other lambs were being offered in sacrifice throughout um, Judaism. But in Luke, um, Jesus isn't either of those things. Um, in Luke, um, Jesus on the cross is just a tragedy. It's a tragedy that's the result of love. That, um, and, and Luke emphasizes Jesus' innocence all the way through, right? So um, in Luke, Jesus has done nothing to merit this, um, awful public execution. And, um, you've got people all over Luke reiterating that Jesus is innocent. You've got Pilate saying so centurion says so one of the rebels hanging across next to Jesus in, in another gospel, they both taught him, but in Luke, one of them declares Jesus innocence. And so this is one of the distinctive takes that Luke has on the gospel, Um, You know, in in Matthew and Mark, the centurion's words are, at as Jesus dies, this is truly the son of God. But in Luke, um, the centurion says, this this is an innocent man, right? And, um, you know, Eric, my colleague says, you know, I wonder whether it's that, did he know that because this was such a unique event? Or did he know that because Jesus' death kind of unmasked um, something that was happening to a lot of people, you know? And that was that Rome's um, purported justice system wasn't all that just. And so in Luke, according to Barreto, the cross is this depiction of um, imperial arrogance and imperial incompetence. And um, I I feel like we've seen a little of that in our own um, culture recently. And you see Jesus, you know, as he's coming before the authorities being passed from from one ruler to another. And with each one, the frailty of the system and the cruelty of the system and the incompetence of the system becomes more and more obvious. Rome is unjustly imprisoning and unjustly executing people all the time. And so in Luke, the reactions aren't cynical. They're just there's just this outpouring of grief. And so the crowds, you know, they come out to the spectacle of the crucifixion. And, of course, remember, this is something that was like that was like a public entertainment event back then. Right. Um, uh, Shannon Ross has this great book called um, Gifts Glittering and Poisoned, um, which is not for the faint of heart. But boy, is it fascinating. And um, basically he, he shows how the Roman leaders, he basically compares the Roman spectacles with our own culture of spectacle. That's the nature of the book. And what he, what he shows is that the Roman leaders would, use, they'd fire up their bases by providing them with bread and circuses. You've probably heard that phrase. Um, and these were spectacles for people to enjoy and watch. That, that included watching people die on crosses and later the Colosseum. And it wasn't just um, Jesus, this happened with lots of people in their culture and maybe in ours. But what happened when the crowds were at the crucifixion was they came there for the spectacle, but then they saw something that they didn't mean to see. They kind of saw behind the curtain in ways. They they realize that what they're watching is an innocent man being put to death. And they see with their own eyes how the imperial power is being fed with human sacrifice. And, you know, if you came to Golgotha that day, you didn't mean to see that. You know, you didn't come for that. You didn't, you didn't turn on your TV and plan to see an innocent man senselessly murdered by the people who are supposed to be there to protect you. Didn't mean to see that. So I think Golgotha is kind of their George Floyd moment um, where they watch this senseless murder by people supposedly there to protect them. And so when this, the centurion is the one who said it out loud, he had the guts to say it out loud. Um, this man was innocent. And so Luke records the crowds that day, they went home, not euphoric from the spectacle, but beating their breasts, right? So for Luke, the cross isn't this tool that God uses. It's this tragedy that God redeems. And so the cross is kind of a crucible. It's this moment of heat and pressure that yields this new thing of hope. And Jesus emerges, of course, with new life, but it's costly. And Jesus has scars. And I think that's that's the analogy I turned to for this past year, right? Um, we're, it, it, we saw things we did not mean to see, you know? And we've started this 2021 beating our breasts. Um, We're going to get through this, but it will be costly and there's going to be scars. So in the last year, you know, we've seen the best and the worst, right? We've seen some sweet things, the pictures. I still love the pictures of the people in Italy singing from their balconies, right? And online proms and Zoom calls with family. And there's been a lot of unspeakable kindness, but we've also seen things, boy, we did not mean to see, you know? Um, And now we can't unsee them. You know, morgues made out of ice skating rinks. Um, These miles of cars at food banks of people who've never before had to ask for food, who are hungry. Um, Innocent people murdered on TV in front of us. And this, this set my mind to a story about, you probably know this story, about how those in the great cathedrals of the middle ages you know they 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 had these huge organs with these massive pipes and of course the way an organ works is that air has to go through the pipes right well i don't know if you know how the bellows were worked in those huge organs but behind we've got these medieval woodcuts that show us they kind of reveal pull the curtain back there and behind the organ were kind of these caves um and where the bellows were, you had to jump on the bellows to get the air through the pipes. And behind the organ, they would they would bring dwarves and children to work the bellows, you know? And it was cramped down there, and they'd have to lean over. And they did this so much that it became hard for them to stand up straight afterwards. They, they became decrepit from this work. And so this beautiful music was made by this... Um, practice in the cave behind the organ and we don't want to see that we don't want to have to deal with that we you you hear that and you can't enjoy the music in the same way right but after you know that you can't pretend to be naive and you can't really enjoy music again until you've addressed the suffering that made that music possible so I feel like we're in that situation here as we are heading into 2021 we've kind of seen the cave behind the organ And we've left this year beating our breasts because we have seen how the real world works. And now that we know that our comfort has come at a price, and often that price is being paid by the young people we love, um, we've got these images we can't get out of our heads. So what do we do about that? So here's, here's where that story goes in Luke. So remember in Golgotha, we got three class, crosses, Jesus in the middle, you got um, a rebel on each side of him, probably there for inciting the mobs, for stirring up the people who stormed the government. One of the thieves is kind of snarky, but the other one basically says, no, man, we dude, we deserve this. But this guy, the one in the middle, he's innocent, you know? And at that point, he that that rebel turns to Jesus and says, remember me, right? He doesn't say save me. He doesn't say take out the guards. He doesn't say, here's my confession. Just remember me. And in a, this year that has just defied words in so many ways, when you're at the end of your words, when you're at the end of yourself, I just wonder if there's any better prayer than that. Just just remember me, you know? Um, I didn't mean to be complicit in any of this. I we didn't mean to hurt anybody. We've got experience, we've got training, we've got tools. How in the world did we become so helpless in all of this? And so here we are, we're feeling vulnerable and exposed and it sucks. And, you know, maybe we've set ourselves up for this, but the point is we don't know what to say in any of this. We've run out of icebreakers, we're, we're done with the games, we've run out of words, and we're at the end of ourselves. So just, Jesus, remember us. And the hope in that is what Jesus says to the guy in response. He doesn't ask him to do anything, he doesn't ask for his confession, he doesn't say repent, he doesn't turn it into a teachable moment, right? He says, right, today you will be with me in paradise, and every time I have read that phrase before pandemic, I always heard paradise. But in pandemic, I heard the middle of the sentence. Today, you will be with me, right? And I wonder what happens to us if, we, if that's the force of that sentence. The very promise that Jesus makes at the moment when we are most vulnerable, when we are most complicit, when we are most lost is that today you are with me. I'm here. All will be well. Not because of what you do, not because you have a vaccine, not because you have a new president, but because you have me. Today you are with me. Today you are with God. There's so much, you know, that needs our attention because we can fail in a thousand different ways, and we hate that. But I think faith starts here with rejection and humiliation and betrayal and good Friday and death. And what Jesus says in those awful moments is I haven't forgotten you right today. You will be with me first, the dusk, then the dawn, first, the cross, then Easter, first, you die, then new life. And that's when God's promise starts to materialize. I think it's so fascinating that in, the ancient world, this witness of God, right? This refusal to leave us to stew in our own juices. It was so mind boggling. I mean, after, after, they, what do you call that thing that just happened, right? So astonishing. These ancient people had no words to describe this witness. All they could do was describe what they kept seeing again and again. And it's all the way through, right? First he died, and then he was with us. How did that happen? First, he died, and then he was in the garden, or he was on the lakeside, or he was in the upper room, or he was on the road to Emmaus, or he was at the table. First, he was dead, and then he was with us. What do you call that? And nobody knew. They just they just kept reporting instances where it happened. And it was 50 or 70 years, something like that, before anybody called it resurrection. They just didn't know, have a word for it. Paul was the first one that had the guts to give it a label. And that label was resurrection, that withness. So that's what I'm taking to the bank right now.
0: Thank you, Kinda. Um, okay, so I'm right there with you.
2: That's very Jesus y of you.
0: But uh, yes, <laughs> with you. No, I'm right there, <laughs> right there with you. But uh, so how do you, how do you keep that sense about you? Because right? a, a lot of days, kind of cognitively, I can give a scent to the fact that there's with happening. Yeah. It doesn't feel like it.
2: Right, right. Uh,
0: so, how do you do that? Like, especially in these crazy times. Yeah. Right? What are some things that that help center us there?
2: Well, um, you know, where my head goes on that, Jeremy, is to go back to what helped the folks in those stories, you know, mm-hmm. about withness, right. Um, they did the things that they had always done with Jesus. They walked with him. They had supper with him. They went fishing with him. Um, and, you know, it makes me, I, in um, John, John of the cross um, the dark night of the soul. Um, one of the things he says that when you're in the middle of the dark night, this is a really bad time to be doing anything new. Right. Mm-hmm. Don't, he's like, don't go reinventing things. Don't go reinvent. This is, a, if, if you're thinking of changing relations, bad time to change relationships, you know, just sit still is what he says. And his images, he says, look, in these periods of the dark night, when you feel so paralyzed, just don't make a lot of new changes. Sit still. Cause what, what's happening is God is painting your portrait. And if you move around a lot, it's gonna mess up the picture, you know? So let God paint you. Let God um, re-image you in this period, right? Um, So in terms of our own, you know, lives, I, I tend to think that the things that we have done best in pandemic for this, right, is not, and look, I spent so so many hours trying to learn internet tricks that would be cool enough that people would want to be online, <laughs> Right. I, I've spent a year doing a lot of them. They don't matter. What matters is that we are walking together towards someplace, right? What matters are the, the zoom coffees or the, you know, the. what matters is the stuff that's always mattered. Um, and so that somehow we, and I didn't, I didn't plan this, but we are with each other. That's what we miss and that's what matters when we can somehow approximate that. So um, yeah, that's uh, my super unprofound response
1: to that. Um, Kenda, the, the things that I'm um, you know linking back to some of the stuff that we were talking about at the beginning also is, is those very things that have to do with building friendships. Um, you know often, yeah, when we use uh, you know relationship with God or relationship with Jesus, um, it would be just as easy to be able to say friendship. Um, those <laughs> things that are good for friendship are those things that are great for building your connection with God and and seeing your image in what you know God is trying to to reimage in you. Um, so I, I find myself trying to do the same things that I would do with friends, right? Set yeah. aside, set aside special time, um, make a habit of trying to make a connection and, and also not carry a bunch of expectations into what the time is going to be. Right. Um, right. But to be very regular in my habit of doing it and saying, you know what, this is valuable enough for me that I want that friendship with you.
2: Yeah. You know, I, I have learned a couple of um, things about how we experience that friendship in this milieu. Of course, loneliness is rampant, and uh, young people are really, you know, in a mire of loneliness a lot of the times. And the number one way um, young people feel less lonely is a phone call, mm-hmm. not a Zoom call, a phone call, which I thought was really interesting um, because it's weird. I I kind of hate phone calls, um, and but Thank I you. but I hate them less than Zoom calls. You know what? All of a sudden. Right. The phone's my friend because I can walk around <laughs> and I can, you know, I can. So, um, so that's one thing. And um, the other thing that is really interesting. This is more of a, a teacher thing, right? But you know how when we're on Zoom, we're we're it's a hundred percent content all the time. It's a hundred percent being observed all the time. And both of those things are they're really intensive brain activity um, postures. And the way you build relationships isn't through any of that, right? The way you build relationships is in the conversations you have with people in between classes or while you're going to the restroom with people or, you know, whatever, these sidebar conversations, that's where it happens. And that's the, um, they call it phatic communication. It's meaningless chat, sort of, but a relationship is built on a thousand meaningless moments, right? And so you can't build up those meaningless moments in this milieu very well. So what that tells me and what I learned um, is you always have to keep the chat open and let people have sidebar conversations and not get so paranoid that they're not paying attention because where the connection is happening isn't in this, it's in this thing at the side of the screen.
0: And Um, youth are so good at that, at chatting and, 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 and yet we, we don't even, very often we we don't set up the encouraging opportunities for them during this year of pandemic. we they it's so it, it's an opportunity that I don't think we have taken um, what what would happen if youth were given the 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 job, the responsibility, the ministry of doing chat rooms in their worship or or yeah. the, you know, taking care of the chat during the online worship um, and and just making sure that they were engaging every person who was watching that worship time
2: and another thing that i i learned learned this from andrew zersky i don't know if you've read beyond the screen it's a really good tech and um ministry book for kids um but anyway so andrew's a former um student of mine and so this summer i i actually literally hired him to teach me internet tricks because he's a whiz at this stuff <laughs> and he told me at the beginning it's not about that just do your thing and I'm like, no, 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 I'm an idiot with the internet. Tell me what I, I got to do. So so he did, but um, at the end of it, he was 100% right, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that he he suggested was, look, get a thread going um, on your phone. Let everybody, So everybody can text each other together. And that way you can send texts as well to the group, you know, and um, sort of check in with them in a way that is again, it's, it's providing this kind of sidebar kind of connection. Um, so where I have done, I haven't done that a lot, but where I have done that with my classes, it has been pretty meaningful. Um, hmm. It's not classes are with grad students. That's slightly different from your basic youth group, um, but you know, not all that much, to be honest. <laughs> um, and anyway, they, people's connection and their ability to send group ch- chats to each other that extends our connection long past our call, right. Cause people keep, they keep texting.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you again for, for being here and leading us through this and, um, and, uh, and also just for your work in general, you know, all of the, mm-hmm. the work that you have produced that has kind of been, uh, been fodder for our ministry for so many years. Um, it's, uh, We're so thankful for all of it.